0: the bloodiest war in American history relative to the country's population at the time of the war? Most people who know anything about American military history will answer that question with, of course, the not-so-civil war. And they're probably right. But if you ask them what the second most deadly conflict in American history in proportion to the country's population at the time was, you'd probably get all kinds of answers. Some of the more Common ones might even be things like Vietnam and World War II. But in fact, by most estimates, the American War of Independence, a.k.a. the Revolutionary War, was the most costly and destructive war in American history other than the not-so-civil war. And believe it or not, some people who have crunched the numbers and studied this question very carefully have even come to the conclusion that it's possible the American War of Independence was even costlier proportionally speaking than the not so civil war ponder that the war lasted eight years and it had lots of elements of real nastiness you had in the fighting of tory versus Whig irregulars brutal atrocities being committed oftentimes neighbor against neighbor and sometimes even brother against brother father against son You had widespread death and destruction across many regions of the 13 states. And of course, as was the case in every pre-20th century war of any significant size, significantly more people died of disease, both soldiers and civilians, than died of bullets and bayonets and artillery shells. This is Prof. CJ, your one-man revolution guerrilla scholar warrior and renaissance man for the new dark age and of course also in this capacity your humble hazardous history helmsman and this is episode 62 of the dangerous history podcast which is part five of our coverage of the american revolution in which we'll look at how the war ended why the americans won and the british lost and how various groups of people either benefited from or were harmed by the war and its outcome and its aftermath so Let's talk about the end of the war. Of course, last episode, and and I highly recommend you go back and and listen to the episodes before this in the series if you haven't already. It just, you know, will make a lot more sense. But um, last episode, we mentioned how Yorktown was the last really big military operation of the war. And British General Cornwallis' surrender there was key in causing uh, the last remnants of political support for the war in Parliament to lose power and lose favor. Now, there had always been, from all the way back in the days of things like the Stamp Act and and the Coercive Acts and, and things in the 1760s and 70s that pissed the colonists off in the first place, there had always been people in the British government, in the British Parliament and so on, who were sympathetic to the Americans' grievances and didn't like what was happening to them. Likewise, when the war started, there were people who in in Britain who were against the war and and didn't like the the notion of fighting their own colonial uh, cousins as they would have seen it. But of course, as you might expect, as the war dragged on longer and longer, and especially as uh, the likelihood of a British victory began to appear ridiculous and uh, they started to lose eventually, well... This anti-war sentiment that that initially was not a very big uh, percentage of people either in or out of parliament got a lot more powerful um, and, and ultimately is able to seize control of the British government. And anti-war sentiment really began increasing in 1780, even a year before the surrender at Yorktown. And one of the things that was happening at that time was that the, the British government was... Using, up to that point in the war, the two main things they used in their, in their propaganda, in their PR, to try and keep uh, people on the side of, of fighting the war, the, the two things they kept coming back to were fear of France. Once France was in the war, most Brits, whether they were just regular folks or whether they were in the government, saw France as, as the much bigger danger, right? So that was one reason the pro-war people gave to stay in the war was France, right? Can't surrender to France. They are our ancient enemy. And the other one they kept coming back to to justify continuing the war was the potential plight of the Tories, or the Loyalists, as they're sometimes called today. Uh, back then, I don't think they were, they were hardly called Loyalists at all. They are almost always called Tories. Uh, the, the American you know, colonial residents who were pro-British government still, they would use the specter of the potential plight of these people if the British left and they seem to have drastically overestimated the number of Tories in the colonies throughout the war whether by accident or on purpose and it's kind of similar in some ways to what you see um during the the American war in Vietnam where even as the war starts to look hopeless and like you can't win still there's people saying but if if we if we leave we abandon our our local allies our local supporters to the wolves of of the enemy that was kind of the feeling on the part of of some of the pro-war Brits, if we leave, what happens to those Tories who are still in America? But again, after Yorktown, um, and also in the same year as Yorktown, 1781, the the French and Spanish continued to make gains at Britain's expense all around the world, Um, more and more influential Brits began to decide that there was more danger in continuing the war than in bringing it to a stop interestingly one of the guys who continued to the very end to call for just keeping up hardline and force and coercion against the Americans until you know they finally they finally submitted was a guy named Lord George Germain who was the British Secretary of State for the colony so part of the, the cabinet and he kept you know, despite all the losses that started to happen uh, le- later in the war, he kept still pushing for this idea of we- we've got to keep up the fight. And very interestingly, when you look at his rationale in the historical record for why, um, he bases it on a version of of, an, of a notion that Americans would in the 20th century during the Cold War call the domino theory. That's basically, the, the last rationale that somebody like Germain, who wanted to keep fighting the war, has is the domino theory, which most of you probably have at least some idea of what that is, but um, just in case you don't, it was a notion in uh, the, the 50s and 60s in the Cold War uh, amongst some American leaders that if even one country fell to communism. Even if it was like a country that didn't have much strategic value or wealth or anything like that, even if it's a country that, you know, a more a more real politic type of, of leader might look at and go, Yeah, let them have that one. That that country's a piece of crap. Well, the the more hardline people would say, No, you can't do that because if if just one more country falls to communism, no matter how small and insignificant and crappy of a country, uh, then the countries that are you know, bordering and in the neighborhood of that country will catch communism, and it'll spread and spread and spread, and so that's why uh, Team America has to be willing to fight tooth and nail and sacrifice ridiculous amounts of, of lives and treasure and so on for Vietnam, which is not exactly a very wealthy or strategically important country in in a traditional sense of those words. But the idea was, oh, Vietnam becomes communist. Then, you know, all the other countries in the neighborhood are going to fall one by one like dominoes. And next thing you know, communism will be knocking at the door of Australia. And by God, from then it's just a matter of time until the communists get to California, which somebody back then should have pointed out that California had been full of communists for a long time. But that's a different story. So anyway, uh, once again, we come back to the, to the old theme that uh, Mark Twain is most famous for articulating, as, as he always does so well. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Here you have, in the 18th century, British leaders pushing for a war that was clearly starting to look like, like a can't-win war, um, based on, on a notion of what later gets called the domino theory. And then it comes back up again when Team America is the global empire in the 20th century. As Murray Rothbard puts it in Conceived in Liberty on this issue, quote, The loss of America, he's he's describing the domino theory as articulated by British leaders such as Lord Germain, quote, The loss of America would lead inexorably to the loss of, of the West Indies, the American trade, and the West Indies trade. Ultimately, peace would mean, in the words of Germain, and Rothbard then quotes him, quote, that we can never continue to exist as a great or powerful nation after we have lost or renounced the sovereignty of America, End quote. Funny how justifications for imperialism are almost always very similar, despite wildly different time periods and countries and geography and circumstances. I mean, you find similar things throughout many of the, the great empires, if not most of them, um, all the way from ancient through modern history, where sooner or later someone's going to come out with a justification, you know, if you've got a, a crappy dirty war going somewhere that it doesn't look like you can really realistically win, um sooner or later somebody's going to pull out the justification that well if we lose, we'll, you know, lose face with the world and uh, the entire world will no longer fear us and respect us and will stop being a great power and and then I, I don't know what I don't know what happens after that, right? They always sound like underpants gnome it and skip a few things, but I guess uh, sooner or later, if you, if you actually have the prudence to stop and get out of a stupid go-nowhere war, then it's just a matter of time until other countries start questioning the size of your country's genitalia. That, that's about all I can figure. Another intriguing parallel between the British ideas of sort of a domino theory in the 18th century and the Americans in the 20th century is in both cases... Vietnam for America and the American War of Independence for the British, in both cases, um, while both countries were were rocked in various ways by their losses in those respective wars... um, In both cases, both countries continued to be global powers for quite some time afterward. And the dominoes didn't fully fall as foretold. I mean, the British continued even after this war to hold on to Canada, uh, to hold on to many important islands in the Caribbean, a whole bunch of other important territories scattered around the world. And in fact, at the time of the end of the American War of Independence, the British Empire was not even remotely at its peak of size and power yet. So similar to, again, America's loss in the Vietnam War, where, yeah, there was some uh, there was some cost to that loss. There, there were some negative consequences and so on. But on the other hand, it wasn't like Team America ceased to be a superpower or anything like that. In fact, um, you could argue that with the fall of the Soviet Union, Team America's days as the superpower were still yet to come, whether for good or for ill, you figure out for yourself. And again, in both cases, the dominoes did not fall as predicted. Uh, there, there may have been like one or two cases, but nothing like what the pro-war people were saying. So uh, this guy, Lord Germain, was the main obstacle within the British cabinet to having some sort of peace settlement and granting America independence. And so he was eventually sacked in early 1872 to get him out of the way. And the only other major obstacle was King George. Uh, King George also shared similar sentiments to what Lord Germain had said, and of course he couldn't be ousted the way Germain had been, uh, short of a flat-out domestic revolution, which despite the growing unpopularity of this war in Britain, an outright insurrection against the king was very unlikely. Ironically, even when the war was getting less and less popular, the king himself, uh, his personal popularity went up. Which maybe can be explained by that concept I mentioned uh, a couple episodes back. I think it was the episode on 1775 where I talked about how there's a tendency for people to, uh, people who, who live under a monarchy and who've been born and raised under a monarchy to always want to think the best of the monarch. Even when the government's and you over, they always want to come up with alibis for the monarch himself and say, well, it's just Parliament being assholes. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the ministers uh, being jerks and, and giving the king bad information and so on. The king's a decent guy. He means, well, he's just, you know, being kind of whatever, manipulated or deceived or who knows. But even though King George continued to uh, not be in favor of a negotiated peace, and even though, you know, he, he was not realistically going to be fired by anybody at the time, Parliament soon managed to shut down the war anyway. They passed resolutions that defunded the war and called for a halt of operations. And they wanted to make it absolutely clear so that nobody uh, in the British, you know, high up in the British governments in any branch of the government, would continue to try and, um, you know, in a renegade fashion, push for the war. On May 4th, 1782, Parliament passed a resolution that said something, something to the effect that anyone who continued to advocate for offensive operations in this war would be considered an enemy of the country. Wow. Wow. Even to advocate for continued uh, aggression and prosecution of the war would make you an enemy of the country. Well, like I guess the king... Uh, even even the king had to kind of respect that one a little bit. Um, the North Ministry, the Ministry of Lord North, which had been the one which had prosecuted the war, was replaced by a new government led by a man named Lord Rockingham, who was known as more of kind of a, a liberal of back then, a reformer and so on. And by the way, whom King George hated. And um, one of the centerpieces of Rockingham's platform was recognizing the independence of the American colonies, and bringing about a halt to this war. In the face of all this, the king realized he had to quiet down, uh, at least in public, if he knew what was good for him. Negotiations between the various parties of the war were ongoing in uh, Paris. They had actually been started even before the siege at Yorktown was concluded. So understand, there's not a final deal yet until almost two years after the end of Yorktown. And there's kind of a limbo situation in the colonies where there still are large numbers of British troops. Some of them are in the process of being evacuated even before the final treaty. Um, A few units are not. So, um, for example, in the second half of 1782, the British evacuated most of their troops from the 13 American colonies, and uh, particularly most of the port cities, with the exception of New York City. The, The redcoats there stayed there till the very end. And when these units of of redcoats would leave, very often thousands of loyalists would go with them. Like I said, by the time the peace treaty was finalized, only New York City, uh, of the colonial city, still had British troops in it. Negotiations had begun in Paris as early as September 1781, again, while the siege at Yorktown was still ongoing. And America's team of negotiators there were Ben Franklin, John Adams, and John Jay. And say what you will about these guys, I certainly have problems with all three of them of various types. But I will say this in their favor. If you had to pick a three-man team to negotiate something on your behalf, uh, I don't think you could do a whole hell of a lot better than these three guys. They're all really experienced in political wheeling and dealing. Um, Two of them were lawyers by training and and occupation, Adams and Jay. You know, Ben Franklin probably needs no introduction. John Adams uh, as well, you know, was heavily involved in things like writing the Declaration of Independence, was heavily involved in the rebellious movement from very early on, later becomes first vice president of the United States under the Constitution and second president. Again, I, I don't have a lot of love for his uh, political beliefs and ideology, but I will say that John Adams is a very good uh, negotiator. Remember, this is the guy who managed to get the redcoats who carried out the Boston Massacre off the hook, for the most part, way back before the war. John Jay, not as well known but uh, a guy who later becomes the first chief justice of the United States Supreme Court when the Supreme Court is created. So, you know, all three very very sharp guys, all of them spoke multiple languages, etc. Again, if you had to put together a team of guys to go negotiate something on your behalf, uh this would be a pretty damn tough team to beat. Now, France and Spain were at least in theory, on the same side of America. Uh, France was officially, there had been a treaty concluded between the colonies in France or the, the United States and France. Um, Spain was more de facto. Remember, Spain entered the war, but was only formally allied with France and not with America. But, you know, by de facto, they're helping the Americans when they're, you know, attacking British uh, colonies in other parts of the world and so on. And the, the Spanish did actually send the Americans on several occasions, you know, some supplies and things like that most of the rest of Europe had been neutral, although oftentimes in sort of an anti-British way. There was a lot of countries in Europe that really wanted to see the British get theirs. They had been on a, for the most part, a winning streak, most of their wars for the past couple hundred years or so. And they had been, um, since the mid to late 17th century, they had clearly been uh, starting to get ahead in the overseas empire game. And so a lot of the countries in Europe felt like, hey, let's let us let them take one on the chin. So Arguably, uh, an important part of why the, the British lose is because they don't really have much in the way of allies in this war. Now, as the negotiations get rolling, uh, the French foreign minister, Charles Vergen, was trying to draw the war on. He actually seemed to be not trying to bring the war to a uh, rapid conclusion. And the reason is he's playing his own game. He's playing a game for France. His number one priority is what he thinks is good for France, not what he thinks he's good. For, what he thinks is good for America. Remember, the French got into this war not out of any love for the uh, the Americans or for their ideals as written in their documents and that sort of thing. Um, that you know, there were individual Frenchmen who were fans of some of that stuff, like Lafayette, but. You know, why, why did the French government ultimately decide to do this? The answer is simply to stick it to the British, to, to get them, you know, basically screw them over when they're dealing with an internal rebellion in their empire. Um, help it. Again, not not out of any love for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. France at this time is still an absolute monarchy. But they were happy to help anyone who was going to really cause trouble for the British. And so the French leaders like Virgin. Uh, Believe that the longer the war drags on, the better it is for France, because the longer the war drags on, the more it bleeds the British of resources and manpower and so on, and the more opportunities it presents for France to maybe take a few more colonies from Britain. And also, Vergen seems to have thought that by dragging the war on more, it would make the U.S. ever more dependent on France and maybe. Um, would result in America becoming what in modern terms they would call an informal imperial possession of France. There were also areas on specific territories where um, Virgin was trying to not get the Americans more territory. There, there was some question about what's going to happen to the land that is west of the Appalachian Mountains but east of the Mississippi River. That was kind of up in limbo. That had been nominally part of the British Empire since the Seven Years' War. But, you know, now what's going to happen with the British loss in mainland North America? Is that is that land going to change hands? And France didn't didn't really want that land to go to the to the Americans, to the new American, to the new United States. At the same time, Spain continued to be ambiguous and had been all along. Um, again, they they technically never allied with the United States. And actually, during the war, they refused to even officially recognize the independence of the states. something that France did do. But like I said, Spain did help out in various ways even sending some logistical support on a few occasions but at the end of the war they're clearly playing their own game too which you know you can't really blame these other countries for doing what is in their interest right i mean it would be ridiculous if they were putting the interests of another country uh, another country's goals and welfare first right like america does with israel well ooh, what was that uh, just slipped out sorry now the When the Continental Congress had sent these guys to go negotiate a treaty, Franklin, Adams and Jay, they had given them instructions along the lines of basically play along with however France wants to do it. Right. But when they realized what the French are doing and that not only is the French not putting American interests first, but is really pursuing things that could hurt America. You know, obviously, America suffered a lot of death and destruction, you know, burning of crops, destruction of towns, all these sorts of things. Um, that from the American perspective, the sooner the war can successfully be concluded, the better. Right. They don't want to see the war go on. So Franklin Adams and Jay decide to hell with it. Um, We're going to go ahead and and ignore our orders from Congress and we're going to play our own game. And the American delegation began to hold separate talks with the British without the presence of Vergennes. Originally, they were going to, you know, have all the talks be joint with American, French and British delegations all in the same room negotiating simultaneously on these things. Well, now they're going to do it separate. What happens is they shrewdly employ a a strategy that today is called triangular diplomacy. I don't believe that um, that term was invented yet, but that's what they're doing. Triangular diplomacy, if you don't know, is the idea that. If you're negotiating with two parties that have some mutual hostility of some type, then you can get a better deal for yourself if you skillfully play off the other two parties' uh, hatred and distrust or whatever of each other. You can end up getting a, a better deal for yourself than you would have without using this strategy. Think about the ways that uh, kids with divorced parents are sometimes able to manipulate their parents and do things like, you know, manipulate themselves better Christmas presents or manipulate their punishments down negotiate punishments down by if you have two parents that really um, don't have an amicable divorce, you play them off against each other. And if you do it skillfully, sometimes you can, um, you know, end up with a better deal than you otherwise would have if you had been facing a united front. You can also see this being done to some degree in the 70s during detente when people like Henry Kissinger started to play the Russians and Chinese off against each other a bit because he understood the Russians and Chinese were starting to not be so friendly with each other anymore. Basically, what it comes down to is that as much as the British, for obvious reasons, are not happy with the American colonies, now states, right, um, they still hate and fear the French more. So, for example, if there's going to be a piece of land or something like that that the British are going to have to give up at the negotiating table, they'd actually rather put it into American hands than French hands. And this ends up greatly benefiting the newly independent American republics the British end up being surprisingly generous. In part, it's probably a combination of, you know, just wanting to be done with the whole mess as soon as possible. And again, it's also in part, they would rather make concessions to America than to France, if at all possible. So the Treaty of Paris signed September 1783 between America and Britain, uh, and then is followed in later months by treaties between France and Britain and between Spain and Britain. These These were done separately. Um, some of the terms of this treaty. First, most important, of course, is recognizing the independence of the American colonies as states. Interestingly, the treaty uses the word states, again, denoting sovereign political entities. It does not speak of the United States as a conglomerated, you know, centralized blob. Not only that, when it speaks of these states, in the treaty, it actually lists them one by one by name. It says something along the lines of his majesty's government recognizes the independence of the following as free and independent states. And then it goes on, you know, New Hampshire, New York, etc. cetera, list them all one by one. So that's another piece of historical evidence to show that the decentralist view of American history is the one that actually accords with much more of the facts prior to the not so civil war. In addition to recognizing the independence of the 13 states, it also said that the land west of the Appalachians, uh, but east of the Mississippi River, would go to American hands. So that's going to be an issue after the war, how to deal with that. Um, some of the states felt they had claims to that land and wanted to extend, extend themselves westward. Um, what ends up happening, of course, is that Western New Land is divvied up into territories that eventually, as they become developed and populated, become states. Um, in the treaty, doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was it was big money back then. A big, big economic factor, Americans would still be allowed fishing rights off Newfoundland. This was in particular very important to New Englanders, who a big part of many of their livelihoods was fishing in that area off Newfoundland. The treaty said that the British would evacuate their forces, quote, with all convenient speed. However, the British end up keeping some of their Western frontier garrisons occupied in response to America's failure to live up to the Tory-related clauses of the treaty, which we'll get to in a moment. Another clause of the treaty said that both sides would enforce pre-war debts held between citizens of the two countries. So, for example, if an American owes a debt to a Brit or vice versa, uh, those debts are not voided by this political Um, Change by this independence, those debts are still to be honored. And as you might expect, this uh, disappointed a lot of debtors. And there were far more people who were Americans indebted to Brits than the other way around. So a lot of American debtors who owed money to, you know, some British bank or whatever, kind of disappointed by that one. The treaty also said that the Congress, the Continental Congress, would, quote, earnestly recommend, end quote, that the states return all rights and property to loyalists. This uh, ends up never being implemented in any way. The treaty also said that Tories who were imprisoned would be freed and that no future actions against Tories remaining in America would be taken as far as confiscating property or any, anything along those lines. And this is also not not uh, nearly fully lived up to in the years after the war. The treaty also said that both Britain and America would at least supposedly have access to the Mississippi River, which was a huge deal. That's the superhighway of the interior of North America back then. There's no no real decent road system and there's nothing resembling like railroads yet. So the the river, the Mississippi River and its major tributaries, that's the superhighway of interior North America. Um, However, in reality, Spain really controlled it still, and after the war um, proved to be unwilling to allow America and Britain uh, regular access to the river as they were supposed to. So those are most of the major things in the Treaty of Paris, 1783. In the treaty that the British made with Spain, Florida, both East and West Florida, as they were called at the time, returned to Spain. Uh, Remember that West Florida had been successfully reconquered, by the Spanish during the war. East Florida had not been, but of course they lose it at the negotiating table. And what happened was during the war, especially during the latter parts of the war where there was a lot of action and nastiness going on in the deep south, lots of Southern Tories fled to East Florida, which was still in British hands and was kind of quiet for most of the war. And then these Tories, uh, thousands of them who went to East Florida end up because of this treaty deciding to leave. Um, The Spanish didn't make them leave, but most of the Tories who went to East Florida, decided they'd rather not live under Spanish authority, even if the Spanish were saying that they could stay, and and so on. Relatively few did. Also, the Louisiana Territory remained in Spanish hands, at least in theory, although their their numbers in that territory were not really big. And like I said before, once this treaty's hammered out and and the word of it gets across the Atlantic, in December 1783, the British troops leave New York City, taking about 7,000 more Tories with them. So now I want to mention some factors as to why the British lost and why the Americans won, which seem like saying the same thing in different words, but it's it's kind of subtly different when you think about it. And I don't claim that this is definitive. I'm sure there are things that any of you who've really studied this war could think of that I've left out, but these are just some that strike me as pretty important. And these are in no particular order. I, I haven't ranked them in terms of you know percentages of importance or anything like that. Um, but as far as the British and their shortcomings, um, things that they did or things about them or their situation that um, ultimately led them to lose. A big one is they failed, in my opinion, to ever have a coherent grand strategy for actually winning the war. And that's a big deal. You know, when they're planning out their operations, they, they have these sort of, you know, regional strategies Right, these ideas of what they're doing this year in this one theater of, of, of operations, what have you. But they really never had the grand idea of, OK, what does victory over America look like and how do we best achieve it? And so you find them just kind of, you know, throwing shit at the wall to see what will stick. They had all these all these different ideas that varied over the years. You know, they had the idea of, well, we'll just uh, take over the Hudson Valley and cut off New England from the rest of the colonies. And I'm I'm still scratching my head going, how's that going to win the war, though? Right. How's that going to um, cause all 13 of the colonies to submit to British authority? They had, you know, the later in the war, the well, we'll go down south and we'll start taking over things down there and and uh, allying with local loyalists and freeing slaves and blah, 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 and take the important southern cities like Charleston. And again, they were actually successful with a lot of that for a while, but it did absolutely jack squat to really help them win the war. Another British shortcoming, I would say, is they seem to have consistently overestimated loyalist numbers. Probably the clearest case of this is in the South, where they believed that there were a majority of Southerners, especially in the Deep South, were loyalist, and they based their plans on that. And it turned out not to be true, even though at first it looked like it was, you know, when they were just operating in, in some of the coastal areas of Georgia and South Carolina, there were a lot of loyalists there, but that sure as hell wasn't everybody. Another thing I would say that the British uh, dropped the ball on was they often, by their behavior, the behavior of British and Loyalist troops, w- were very good, I'm sure not on purpose, but were very good at driving undecideds into the Patriot camp. You know, there were a lot of people who kind of didn't want to pick sides in the war, who wanted to just uh, till their crops and, and live their life and and would, would rather not have to get involved but, you know, if a British army or a loyalist army comes marching through your neighborhood and is behaving very badly, is is pillaging and raping and doing who the hell knows what, well, um, that it doesn't take a leap of logic to figure out that a lot of people who had been kind of in the undecided camp um, under those circumstances might say, all right, to hell with it. Um, I'm, I'm part of the uh, I'm part of the rebels now. And this is a lesson that has never really been fully learned by conventional armies as far as how to deal with insurgency. Um, They pay lip service to it, like they talk about it in official documents and what have you, but as far as actually accomplishing that successfully, conventional militaries have a piss-poor record over the past 200 and some odd years of doing that with any success. So... Some British units, such as um, the notorious unit of Bannister Tarleton, behaved badly on purpose as as a tactic, trying to use a version of an, an early small scale version of total war barbarism in order to bring about submission Now, most British units were not that bad, and there actually were more than a few British officers who really, really tried to keep their troops from you know, terrorizing civilians and and pillaging and raping and all that stuff, Uh, sometimes with success, sometimes not. And many still behaved badly, despite the sometimes good intentions of their leaders. And, you know, whether soldiers British soldiers are behaving badly towards civilians because they've been told to or whether they are um, disobeying their officers in in doing that doesn't really matter that much if at all to the perspective of a civilian who's on the receiving end of this behavior and again all evidence seems to be that uh, every time the British or their their loyalist militia units and things that they put together Every time those groups behaved really badly towards civilians, they seem to have multiplied rebels. This is a concept you find in something like fourth generation warfare, where the harder you crack down on the insurgency, the more it is strengthened because you drive more people who previously hadn't been, you know, part of the insurgency. They had been neutral or whatever, just trying to stay out. Um, A lot of them end up Eventually running into the arms of the insurgents. So the more you crack down, the stronger your enemy gets. And again, this is a lesson that uh, modern states and conventional militaries have just not even remotely started to understand as far as I can tell. You can see it in recent times with the drone attacks. You know, even even some of our own military studies have indicated that for every one terrorist you actually get with a drone, you create a whole bunch more because you kill all these innocent people, all of whom have friends and relatives who now want revenge. The British found this out in Northern Ireland uh, earlier in the 20th century as well. Watch a movie like Bloody Sunday to see how that works. Right. The the British troops massacre peaceful demonstrators um, in the, I guess it was the 70s in Northern Ireland, and what ends up happening is suddenly, the IRA, which had been kind of uh, dwindling in terms of its its manpower and support, the IRA suddenly has like more recruits than they know what to do with. And there were intelligent British officers and British soldiers who understood that they were really screwing themselves over every time they behaved badly towards civilians. A British lieutenant colonel named Charles Stewart wrote in 1778, quote. We planted an irrevocable hatred wherever we went, which neither time nor measures will be able to eradicate. End quote. And a British Army surgeon named John Hayes, looking back after the war ended, wrote, quote, We have rambled through a country to make enemies of those who in their hearts were our friends. End quote. And another problem for the British, again, and I kind of already mentioned this before, was. That they didn't really have much in the way of allies, especially allies that really were helpful in this war. So they're facing an internal insurrection in their empire that is supported by powerful imperial rivals. And uh, perhaps more skillful diplomacy in the decades before this might have resulted in the British um, having more help, or at least having fewer countries who were happy to step up and. Uh, take sides with the Americans in this just to kick the British. Now, a factor that the Americans had that benefited them and helped them win was popular support for the war effort and independence. Now, this, you know, we don't have super precise poll data or anything resembling that, so educated guesses and extrapolations from anecdotal evidence are the best you can do, but even so, it is likely, um, highly likely, that the majority of Americans who were actually active in some fashion, either uh, politically or militarily during this time period, a majority of them were pro-independence rather than pro-British government. People have often heard, and everybody endlessly repeats, this quote from John Adams that a third of the Americans were for the revolution, a third of them were against it, and another third were kind of on the fence or whatever, uh, however he put it exactly. And I'm so tired of hearing that, because it's not correct. Number one, he, he didn't have any, any hard evidence to back that up other than just kind of like personal perception. And John Adams spent half the war in, in Europe in engaged in Asian diplomacy. So how the hell does he know? And uh, when he was in America, he it wasn't like he went to all 13 of the, of the States and was polling people. So even if even if he was saying that statement about the American Revolution, it's still it wouldn't prove anything. You'd still have to take it with a grain of salt for what it was. The exact symmetry between the three different uh, types of Americans is enough to make you think like, you know, that's too convenient. Right. But then there's a bigger problem with that quote. Aside from the fact that, that Adams had... There's no reason to think Adams had any hard hard evidence to, to tell him that. But a bigger problem with that quote from John Adams and the one-third, one-third, one-third thing is that that quote was not about the American Revolution. That quote from John Adams is something he said years later, um, I think when he was either vice president or president, so years after the revolution ended. And he was talking, when he said that, about American perception of the french revolution he was saying in his opinion about a third of americans thought the french revolution was good about a third of americans thought it was bad and about a third of americans were neutral so please if you're somebody who who repeats that that statement and so on um please don't because it's wrong it's wrong um it wouldn't have been you know verifiable even if Adams had been talking about the American Revolution but he wasn't even talking about the American Revolution when he said it so please stop stop bringing that up if you do that to um, support you know some argument you're trying to make about the revolution it is extremely unlikely that the revolution would have succeeded if the split between loyalists and uh, patriots or between you know Tories and Whigs as they would have more commonly called them back then was almost exactly 50-50 that's that's just no way that's not possible for this type of a war now did people's opinions and leanings change somewhat as the fortunes of war waxed and waned for each side sure and were there varying levels on one side or the other, in other words, were there Americans who were pro-independence, but they weren't, like, super gung-ho about it? They were just kind of like, yeah, that sounds good, um, and weren't necessarily willing to do a huge amount of, like, risking and sacrificing for it. But they, they, they were for it, right? And Americans who were like, well, I support the British government, but they weren't really, you know, militant for it. They weren't willing to go join a Tarleton's unit and go torch people's houses, right? That's the other problem you run into, is people have different opinions. Their opinions change uh, during time, depending on who's winning and losing or who they perceive to be winning and losing. And then there's also the problem of the depth of feeling, right? How strong are their feelings for their opinion? Are they strong enough that they're eager to go pick up a musket and fight? Are they strong enough that they're eager to contribute in some other way that involves personal sacrifice to the war? Or is it, well, I'm for that side, but you know, I don't want to really do much about it. Um, Murray Rothbard, in Conceived in Liberty, makes the argument that the war had to have been, and based on the evidence seems to have been, um, popularly supported. Yes, there was a significant contingent of loyalists, and there were a fair number of people who were kind of in the middle on things, but at the end of the day, um, there, there were more people who supported the rebel cause than who didn't. In fact, Murray Rothbard says that popular support for independence on the part of the Americans was, in his, in his mind, the most important factor in sustaining the war. And he calls this war, quote, the first successful war of national liberation against Western imperialism, end quote. Quite ironic in light of the fact that, you know, the United States eventually becomes a Western imperial power. Um, And for more on that, read something like um, William Appleman Williams's tragedy of American diplomacy. Rothbard continues on how the support was so important, quote, it was that support which harassed Quote, many factors entered into the victory, but the most important was the firm support for the war by the great majority of the American people. It was that support which harassed, enveloped, and finally destroyed the proud British armies come to conquer and occupy in the name of traditionally legitimate government. It was a revolution fueled by fervent belief in libertarian natural rights ideology and by a cumulative reaction to growing British infringement on those rights, political, constitutional, and economic. Its victory was essentially a people's victory of guerrilla strategy in its broadest sense, not only of the small mobile guerrilla bands of the Marians and the Sumters, but also of ephemeral and suddenly appearing militia who largely fought in their own neighborhoods and on their own terrain, end quote. And connected to that of course you have the fact that the americans had the home court advantage they had a much easier logistical situation the british had to get a lot of their supplies and manpower from the other side of the world and ship it there so this imposes huge burdens that the americans didn't have in addition you can't discount the the importance of foreign assistance to the american cause This not only provided American rebels with much needed supplies and reinforcement and very important naval support, but as important, if not more so, uh, foreign help caused the British to have to spread their resources a lot more globally to defend all the various important parts of their empire. Had Britain been able to focus all of its attention and military resources on just North America, the odds of their success would have been much higher, especially if they had ever finally figured out some kind of grand strategy to win the war. In particular, French help in conventional military terms may have been key to preventing Washington from losing the war because of his dogged determination to stick to conventional tactics as much as possible and William R. Polk in the book Violent Politics uh, talks more about this, and I'll I'll talk more about this in a moment. You know, the Americans may have been able to win a victory by themselves with some sort of guerrilla insurgent strategy, but their odds of winning a victory by themselves, while at least a lot of their, their resources are used for conventional warfare, would have been significantly less without all that French help. The militia is important, The militia often gets no respect. It's the Rodney Dangerfield of American military history of this war because it has a spotty record in set-piece conventional battles. But I would ask, is that really the key to winning this type of a war? What the militia did was they made it impossible for the British to hold any territory uh, beyond, you know, the immediate range of their guns of wherever they were occupying. It meant that, for example, the British could take the city of Philadelphia and much of the Pennsylvania countryside could still be not under their control because of the militia. One historian I was reading in the giant pile of books I read for this podcast um, used a metaphor along these lines, and unfortunately I failed to put it in my notes, so uh, otherwise I'd be happy to give credit. The metaphor was, what the British were doing in regards to their various, you know, operations into into different places, taking of cities and so on, um, was like swinging a hammer into a giant container of kernels of corn, you know, hard kernels of corn. And, yeah, you swing the hammer in uh, hard at a giant container of corn, and it goes in pretty far, and it damages some of the kernels, but the other kernels just sort of pour in around you, and you don't really accomplish anything and in this metaphor, of course, the British army is the hammer and the militia are the kernels of corn that, yeah, you can hurt them, you can hit them, you can chase them out of your way. But then they just kind of come in behind you and keep surrounding you and you never seem to, to really win, even when you're kicking their ass on the battlefield consistently. In addition to that, the militia performed very important political functions. Um, In particular, they were very effective at suppressing or at least quieting Tories. Um, They acted as like the ideological enforcers of the revolution in a lot of areas and uh, kept the spirit of the whole thing going. So the militia had all kinds of utility beyond just being a supplemental force for battles, sometimes as in the case of Saratoga um, or or in the case of Daniel Morgan's Battle of Cowpens doing a good job. Uh, Other times, like in the Battle of Camden, doing a lousy job, but that was not their most important function looking at the war as a whole. And this is clearly one of those wars. Like all those modern insurgency wars that we're more familiar with, this is one of those wars where obviously winning battles does not automatically equate to winning wars. Historian John Shy has this to say about the militia and their utility in the war. Quote, poorly trained and badly led, Often without bayonets, seldom comprised of the deadly marksmen dear to American legend, the revolutionary militia was much more than a military joke, and perhaps the British came to understand that better than did many Americans themselves. The militia enforced law and maintained order wherever the British army did not, and its presence made the movement of smaller British formations dangerous. Washington never ceased complaining about his militia, but from the, from the British standpoint, rebel militia was one of the most troublesome and predictable elements in a confusing war. The militia nullified every British attempt to impose royal authority short of using massive armed force. The militia regularly made British light infantry, German Jaeger, and Tory raiders pay a price, whatever the cost to the militia itself, for their constant forging, probing, and marauding. The militia never failed in a real emergency to provide reinforcements and even reluctant draftees for the state and continental regular forces. From the British viewpoint, the militia was the virtually inexhaustible reservoir of rebel military manpower, and it was also the sand in the gears of the pacification machine, end quote. And then um, from the same essay by John Shai, which is one of the essays in the book, A People Numerous and Armed, Shy writes of, of the militia, quote, a reservoir, sand in the gears. The militia also looked like a great spongy mass that could be pushed aside or maimed temporarily, but that had no vital center and could not be destroyed, end quote. I want to specifically make the point that, in, in my opinion, Americans won this war primarily in spite of, rather than because of, the leadership of George Washington. Historian William R. Polk in the book Violent Politics, uh, a very interesting chapter in this book. He looks at all kinds of insurgencies throughout history and a very interesting chapter in this book where he writes about the American Revolution. And he's very hard on George Washington's lack of understanding of unconventional warfare and is much more supportive of the ideas of Charles Lee. And he says that Washington's lack of imagination and understanding and innovation when it came to war. Washington's determination to just stick to doing the same, you know, British Army style stuff that was all he knew, almost caused the American cause to fail. So Polk writes, quote, like many later military leaders, George Washington did not understand that process, i.e. unconventional warfare. He so despised the people who engaged the British in this ungentlemanly fashion and was so anxious to sideline them that he came close to losing the revolution. He might have actually done so, except for the July 1780 intervention of 6,000 French soldiers and the September 1781 French naval blockade of Cornwallis's army at Yorktown. The French saved the revolution. End quote. And he means "from Washington's uh, leadership." Even Washington's victory at Yorktown was not one that he ought to be given primary credit for, because after all, Nathaniel Green really set up the entire situation by what he did in the Carolinas to mess up the British operations. And also, the French deserve the lion's share of credit in actually isolating and overpowering Cornwallis's army at Yorktown. Only Trenton and Princeton deserve to be accredited as victories where Washington is the you know the, the sole guy to get the credit and the battles of Trenton and Princeton while they were important especially Trenton from the standpoint of PR and morale they were not huge battles uh, in in the way of like Saratoga of you know how many British soldiers get uh, killed or captured And of course, you know, interestingly, Trenton and Princeton are some of the very, very few times that Washington operated in a guerrilla-like fashion. And he quickly, as soon as he could, reverted back to standard European uh, tactics and strategy. So the rest of the time in the war, in terms of tactics, strategy, organization, Washington was mostly doing things that hampered the effectiveness of the American resistance effort. Murray Rothbard, another guy who's not a fan of Washington, writes, quote, Not only did Washington fail to understand the purely military aspects of a people's revolutionary war, but he also failed to grasp the importance of the free and inspired individual soldier in such a war, and hence he wrecked morale and brought about mutinies by his Prussian discipline. To a large extent, finally, it was the genius whom he broke and discredited, the almost forgotten Charles Lee." who discerned the true nature of the Revolutionary War and the way it has to be won, End quote. And I have to say, perhaps the smartest thing Washington did in the entire war was when he made the decision to put Nathaniel Greene in charge of the Southern War effort when things were going very badly down there. And then the last factor I'll mention here that I think helped the Americans win, and again, how to quantify how much, I don't know, but I think it was a factor, was marksmanship superior marksmanship on the part of the Americans, on average. You know, there were were British soldiers and and German mercenaries who could shoot, but on average, um, there's solid evidence to indicate that the average American shot better than the average British or Hessian soldier. And so this means that the British are often taking horrible losses, even in battles they win. We saw examples of this, like Bunker Hill or um, Guilford Courthouse, things like that, where Technically speaking, the British win in terms of they take the objective on the field, but they suffer, in many cases, much worse casualties. And furthermore, the Americans, especially if they're uh, like frontier militia fighters, are very often deliberately sniping at the officers. And I don't think this can be overlooked or discounted for the cumulative effect that this situation would have on the war. And this goes all the way back. I mean, obviously, a lot of these Americans, especially in the more frontier areas, shot better than the British because they grew up hunting, something that a lot of the British troops, many of whom were from more urban areas back home, uh, had not done. But not only did they already have this tradition of of marksmanship uh, more common in America, but they even wrote it into the original American military manual before Steuben got in. Timothy Pickering, in his Easy Plan of Discipline for a Militia, which was published in 1775, in which I talked about a little bit a few episodes back, Timothy Pickering um, actually wrote these things into his manual. He significantly simplified the orders and the procedures for uh, drill warfare. For example, the British military manual of the time called for 16 separate orders and 19 separate motions for the loading process, whereas Pickering's manual... Called for one order and only ten motions to accomplish the same task, but uh, what's even more interesting, besides the fact that he's simplifying all the procedures of like how to reload your musket and so on, Pickering's manual also reveals the degree to which the Americans were stressing individual marksmanship in contrast to the British area fire approach. So Pickering's manual, for example, included the instructions: "Quote, lean the cheek." against the butt of the firelock, shut the left eye, and look with the right along the barrel at the object you would hit. Or in other words, to use the well-known phrase, take good sight, end quote. And there's nothing comparable to that in British military manuals or instruction of the time. So again, what does this mean? Even when you lose battles, you're inflicting a lot of damage if you're out shooting your opponent. And many, many British officers and NCOs paid the price for American marksmanship. So anyway, these are just some of the factors that I thought of that, based on my studies and thinking about this topic, um, account for a lot of why the British lost and why the Americans won in this war. I'm sure there are plenty of others you can come up with, um, but, you know, that's what I've got for right now. So for the rest of the podcast, what I want to do is talk about winners and losers in this war and i don't just mean in the formal sense of like which countries were on the winning side of the conflict and so on Um, i want to at least in the case of of the americans break it down a little bit more specifically at different social and and um, ethnic groups and so on and look at just some of them and how this war affected them uh, for good or for bad you know when people talk about a good war they oftentimes mean it whether they realize it or not Um, only from one particular perspective. Let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about to illustrate. A lot of people refer to World War II as the good war, right? It's the one war that you can't question uh, the necessity or morality of because the Axis powers were just so freaking bad. And, you know, they were cartoon characters of uh, villains, those those Axis leaders. But um, to say that World War II was, was a purely good war and was purely a triumph of good over evil ignores how many people experienced the war in its aftermath in a very negative light. Um, including people who were not even of Axis countries. So, for example, uh, the Poles, right? The people of Poland. What was their experience of World War II? Well, it started off with the Germans brutally conquering and occupying Western Poland, when the Soviets, shortly thereafter, brutally conquering and occupying Eastern Poland. And then um, a couple years or so down the road, the Germans steamroll through into Eastern Poland, and um, then... You're under German occupation for years and it's brutal and horrible. And then, oh, don't worry, the Germans are losing. Great. That means the Red Army's coming back through and the Red Army is going to then brutally reconquer and occupy Poland and is then going to impose a communist dictatorship on Poland that endures for close to 50 years. So, you know, if you told someone from Poland, that World War II was a wonderful triumph of pure good over pure evil and, and so on and so forth, and it was a truly good war, um, they might, depending on their personality, laugh at you or punch you in the face, right? So there's never any such thing as a good war all around. There's always going to be lots of people who get screwed and not just the the military and and the population of the country that loses the war lots of times just random people uh, some of whom are just in you know other other areas that are not belligerents to the conflict or um, civilians even in the country that wins suffer I mean there's always different groups of people that uh, benefit or or get screwed as a result of the war oftentimes through no fault of their own so i want to talk about some of those groups who benefited and uh, who did not benefit or who even ended up worse off as a result of this war So these are going to be basic um, examples of groups of various winners and losers. And, of course, first let me preface this by saying, yes, there are individual exceptions to both the winners and losers that I'm going to identify. There are particular individuals who are members of groups who, for the most part, benefited from this war, but who personally experience some sort of, you know, tragedy or great cost, and vice versa, right? There are people who are part of a losing group that nonetheless end up doing okay for themselves individually. So I'm talking here, admittedly, painting with a broad brush, but otherwise, you know, how are you going to talk about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people? So, of course, um, one obvious example of a group that benefited enormously were the elite of the American pro-independence faction, both within the military and within the political class. The elite benefited. Yeah, individual exceptions, sure. Obviously, high-ranking military officer gets killed or something. Yeah, he, he didn't benefit. But overall, if you look at most of the people who were either high-level military or political leaders during the war, the tendency is they're doing pretty well afterward, and many of them are doing much better. All you have to do is look at what happens to, for example, the real estate holdings of the real estate tycoon known as George Washington and um, how much he benefited personally from the war and the way it turned out. Adjusted for inflation, George Washington is literally number one the richest president America has ever had. When you look within the military, there's a, there's a huge gulf between how the enlisted men fared and how the officers fared. And, and to be fair, even some of the lower level officers had a tough time of it and ended up not benefiting from the war overall. Um, but the, the higher level officers, some sort of colonel on up, tended to do very well. And again, that was deliberate on the part of Washington, any chance he got, he tried to increase the hierarchy and the gap between the low ranks and the higher ranks. So just for one example, a private in the Continental Army, when he was even paid at all, which was certainly not all the time, earned $6.66 a month, which I guess they, they never thought that that's the number of the beast or whatever, right? A colonel earned $75 a month. So that's what, 11 times as much, something like that? Now, you know, we'd all expect that if you take for granted the existence of a large regular army, that, of course, as you go higher in rank, they're, they're going to get more pay and more privileges and so on. Like everybody uh, expects that. But the question is, to what degree? Right. And, you know, should a colonel be making 11 times what an enlistment, enlisted man makes? Is that fair? Um, especially in light of how much the enlisted man is often bearing the real brunt of everything. You know, sleeping on bare ground and, um, you know, eating bits of flour cooked uh, in a campfire, that sort of thing. In addition to the political and military elite, lots of businessmen, to be fair, some of whom are um, also members of the political elite, did very well. Contractors, right? Right. Those providing goods and things to the, uh, to the army oftentimes earned enormous profits, while the common soldier suffered and rarely got what he was promised. Already we see the things that General Smedley Butler discussed in his early 20th century speech, which was turned into a little book, War is a Racket. These things were already a feature of American war making at the very beginning. Just some more examples. Officers in the Continental Army got half pay for life if they served through the end of the war, while enlisted men who rarely got paid and, like I said, always seemed to suffer and sacrifice the most throughout the war got no such pension whatsoever. A lot of loyalists had huge amounts of land confiscated, the wealthier loyalists, and we'll mention the loyalists in a moment, but um, a lot of that land was divvied up and parceled out, either sold or just granted to various individuals. And while there certainly were examples of kind of regular folks getting modest pieces of land from this, the overwhelming bulk of land, especially the best land confiscated from loyalists, went to members of the political and military elite, along with their family and friends. Like I said, some smaller pieces of land were given to the middle classes, thrown to them as a bone, but as Howard Zinn points out, this is just enough to create a little middle class buffer against the masses of the genuinely poor. I don't think most of the masses at this time were, you know, what we would think of as socialists, but they certainly thought that they heard in the rhetoric of the revolution um, an end to artificial phony privilege and cronyism, which was rampant in the British mercantilist imperial system. And uh, unfortunately for them, they got a a quick education that um, the new American elite was, in many ways, going to behave similarly, uh, helping themselves via the mechanism of the state as much as possible. Now, as I somewhat alluded to um, a moment ago, certain American economic interests benefited from the war, many of whom were elite, although to be fair, some of whom were not. So, for example, um, domestic manufacturers, makers of items like textiles, paper, paper, Pottery, shoes, iron, steel, these sorts of people benefited from the war because American consumers rarely had any access to British goods. Prior to the war, Britain would have been the overwhelming source of all those sorts of manufactured goods. And before the war, British mercantilist policies had often deliberately hampered or even banned American production of certain goods, Many manufacturers benefited, again, like I said before, from demand for footwear, tents, uniforms, ammunition, etc. for the Army. Again, an early prototype of what later gets known as the military industrial complex. And these companies that provided these goods, in some cases, made out like bandits, while the average soldier was suffering and oftentimes not even getting paid his paltry 666 a month. And in regard to these merchants making a lot of money uh, off of the war, very very few of these merchants, by the way, ever were exposed to the dangers of battle. Historian Stephen Conway writes, quote, small wonder that in September 1781, Philadelphia merchants told French officers passing through the city that they had no desire for peace because peace would damage their business, end quote. So you've already got a special interest group that, um, you know, enjoys war because it makes them money. Stephen Conway also points out that grain farmers actually benefited from the war because, as he says, quote, aided by the reduced imports of high quality West Indian rum and the molasses used for making the lower grade New England version, they found that their crops were in great demand for the production of beer and whiskey as replacements, end quote. And of course, in some ways, this is setting the stage for the post-revolution whiskey rebellion that, like I said, I'll probably cover in the near future. Now, another group that made up surprisingly well in this war overall were the Spanish, you know, the Spanish state, the Spanish Empire and so on. They succeeded in retaking West Florida by force during the war, and they also succeeded in regaining East Florida at the negotiating table at the end of the war, even though they had not successfully uh, taken it, uh, with, you know, militarily. So Spain actually did very well in terms of territory in proportion to how much it actually contributed to this war. However, though their empire remained huge on paper, it was clearly beginning its long uh, decline and fall for all sorts of reasons we won't get into here and in which, as far as I know, have nothing directly anyway to do with their participation in this war. So anyway, those are the three biggest beneficiaries as groups that I can see from this war. The elite of the pro-independence guys, particularly in, in the political and military arenas, certain economic interests, mostly manufacturers and grain farmers, and also the Spanish did well. Now, there's a lot more losers. First and most obviously, of course, is the British, the British Empire, the British government, the British state, right? Though, perhaps surprisingly, they are less of losers than some of the other losers I'm going to mention, particularly in the long run. Now, obviously, they lost the war, right? Their empire was chopped down by 13 colonies, plus the land between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River that they lost, plus they lost Florida to Spain, several other little territories they lost to Spain and to France. And the British were left with it. Once again, one of the reasons for the revolution in the first place, the British are left with a massive national debt from the war. However, as many of you probably know, The British Empire was far from done, and in fact the peak of its power and its size was still to come in the future. The British state, though it was strained, managed to sustain this defeat well enough to still, you know, keep itself in power, and while the government of Lord North fell and was replaced by the government of Rockingham, the actual British state itself, you know, Parliament and King, remained secure um, and was never really threatened. In fact, the British state remained viable and um, resilient enough that not too many years later, it was able to beat the French in those huge giant wars of the French Revolution and Napoleon. In contrast to the French government of Louis XVI, which was nominally on the winning side of the war, but which found itself overthrown within just a few years by the French revolutionaries after the American Revolution. Interestingly, as I mentioned before, in Britain, the war, ironically, even though it was a British loss, caused the monarchy in general, and George III in particular, to become more popular than ever. Now, another obvious case of people who were, by and large, losers as a result of this war, not surprisingly, are the Tories or the Loyalists. They might have, uh, according to some of the best modern estimates, accounted for about 20 percent of the overall population of the 13 colonies. Again, John Adams's famous statement about a third, a third and a third is B.S. Um, It's not based on on good evidence. And it wasn't even talking about the American Revolution. So please, please, if you're one of those people that's always bringing that up uh, for whatever reason, please don't. It's not it's not true. Uh, Murray Rothbard, for one, repeatedly declares that a majority of Americans were pro-independence on some level, and he may very well be right, but of course, remember, this changes over time and based on the waxing and waning of the war, and of course, it also doesn't take into account exactly how militant or diehard a revolutionary uh, you are, just that you were you know, more pro-revolution than not. Historian Don Higginbotham writes of this question, quote, Certainly the old symmetrical notion that a third of all Americans were revolutionists, a third Tories, and a third neutralist is too simple and too high for the king's adherents as well as for the neutralists. One of the most intelligent estimates to date is that the Tories were a third and the Patriots two-thirds of the politically active American population, end quote. So there he's looking at the makeup of those who were actually involved on in one fashion or another in this conflict that um, the pro-independence people outnumbered the loyalists by about two to one when you exclude the parts of the population that are kind of neutral, kind of on the fence, trying to stay out of it, whatever. And the Tories, the loyalists were suppressed and were treated pretty badly in many cases by the revolutionaries. And it started pretty early. Walter Borneman in his book, American Spring, about the spring of 1775, writes way back at the beginning of this whole conflict, quote, the rebel movement possessed a very ugly side. Boycotts, protests, and propaganda were one thing, but intimidation, abuse, and physical violence were quite another, end quote. Most of the repression that occurred came at the state and especially the local level, relatively little came from Congress directly other than occasional encouragement and exhortation and whatnot. And often militia were the instruments of enforcing this ideological conformity, of policing the ideas of the revolution, and one way or another silencing, or, or worse, uh, members of the Tory faction. Depending on what estimates you go with, And this is yet another thing from this time period in this war that we don't have exact numbers on. At least 60,000 loyalists fled the colonies during the American Revolution, which, by the way, is actually more than the numbers of French who left during the French Revolution, which, of course, is usually considered a more violent and repressive uh, revolution when it comes to policing counter-revolutionaries. Of course, some estimates of loyalists who fled are as high as 100,000. The top destination, at least it, it, at least initially for these Loyalist refugees, was Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, others fled to Britain. Some went to Nova Scotia for a while, then to Britain. And uh, still others, especially from the southern colonies, especially the Deep South colonies, fled to East Florida, which again, during the war, was a British possession. Many historians are conflicted on the treatment of the Loyalists, and they kind of go back and forth over how much it was justified, how much the way the Loyalists were treated was excessive, and so on. Even Murray Rothbard uh, has some sympathy for the Loyalists uh, at various times in Conceived in Liberty. And he's about as radical as you can get. Don Higginbotham in The War of Independence talks about the Loyalists in these terms, quote... It is easy today for us to take an overview of the loyalist problem, to say the Tories' numbers were inflated, their organization weak, their support from Britain inadequate. The men of 76 did not benefit from our perspective. A revolution is never a milquetoast affair, and the patriots had no choice but to pull out all the stops behind the lines, end quote. So he's basically saying that... With the benefit of hindsight and all that we know now, we can look back and say, yeah, the Tories really weren't uh, strong enough in any way to really be a mortal threat to the revolution. But the guys who were waging the revolution didn't know that at the time. So we should maybe give them a little more benefit of the doubt. Then again, same historian Don Higginbotham, just a little ways down the same page from the quote I just read you from him, admits the following, quote, If one is mindful of the ravages normally associated with civil wars, of the savagery of so many revolutionary zealots in modern times, and fantasies brewed by near-hysterical American fears of domestic communists in recent decades, then the remarkable fact about the treatment of the Loyalists was its relative mildness, mildness, not its severity." And it's true that relatively few, as a percentage of the overall Loyalist population, were ever even formally accused of treason. And of those, few were actually convicted, and few of those convicted were ever uh, executed. The biggest act against the Loyalists, and the one most open to questioning or criticism, is the confiscation of their property. Leaning on the ideas of John Locke, who most people think of as um, articulating a natural right to private property, but they forget that Locke is doing so in the context of creating a state, right? Locke connected one's right to own property with one's allegiance to the state. And so on that basis, the patriots, many of whom were very familiar with the ideas of John Locke, justified their seizure of Tory estates. Higginbotham writes this, quote, The revolutionary government acted with a zeal that implies some of those possessions caught the covetous eye of patriots hoping to enrich themselves at the expense of their neighbors. If state treasuries profited from the sale of confiscated farms and plantations, so did those rebel purchasers who sometimes obtained choice holdings owing to shady transactions." And Murray Rothbard in Conceived in Liberty writes, everywhere Tories were deprived of civil rights and freedom of speech and press. They were especially taxed and were arrested for the duration of the war on mere suspicion and without benefit of habeas corpus. They were herded together and shipped into prison camps far from the British lines in which they were sometimes forced to work for the revolution. They were tarred and feathered, banished, and their lands and properties were confiscated by the state." sometimes they were even executed. They were forced to take test oaths, they were disfranchised and barred from public office, and they were generally forbidden to practice as professional men. In many cases, family punishment was imposed, and relatives of absent Tories were jailed for the behavior of their errant kinsmen and held as hostages. Local vigilante action kept watch on suspected Tories and imposed harsh penalties on them." And in fact, on several occasions during the war, state governments even imposed bills of attainders. A bill of attainder, if you don't know, something actually explicitly prohibited in the U.S. Constitution, basically is a bill aimed at a particular individual that preemptively declares them to be guilty and can even authorize them to be summarily killed on sight. So, you know, has been somewhat revived in recent times through the practice of drones. Look up Anwar al if unfamiliar with this notion. So even someone as radically pro-revolution as Murray Rothbard has enough respect for the notion of rights that he's unwilling to let the uh, treatment of the loyalists, you know, go entirely, and, and is willing to admit that on some occasions at least it was excessive. So definitely the loyalists, big group of losers. Again, I don't mean this in any judgment about their character. I mean, as a result of whether they were net beneficiaries of the war or not. Another group of losers that lost even more in many cases than the Tories were the Indians. Things started going badly for many of them during the war, and the American victory pretended worse yet to come most of the Indians who were in the vicinity of this conflict sided with the British largely due to that proclamation of 1763 that had reserved most of the lands west of the Appalachians to the Indians. And some of these Indian tribes had long-standing pretty good relationships with the, uh, the British. The Iroquois, a confederation of multiple tribes, um, the, the Creek Indians, and, and several others had long had decent relationships with the British, and so they tended to side with them in this war if they took sides. And they also, many of them, were shrewd enough to understand that the American colonials were much more aggressive in terms of coveting Indian land than were the British authorities back in London at that time. One of George Washington's less well-known nicknames was Canato Carius," which might sound like um, some sort of dinosaur, maybe, but it was actually a nickname given to Washington by the Seneca Indians all the way back in 1753, just before the outbreak of the French and Indian War. Now, what does Canato Carius" mean? It translates as town destroyer or burner of towns. Now, what does that tell you about George Washington and how he dealt with Indians even, you know, two decades before the Revolutionary War? Well, imagine what Canato Carius is going to do when he has to deal with Indian tribes who are friendly to the British during this war. In 1779, uh, in response to a a series of Indian raids against some American settlements in um, upstate New York, George Washington ordered what becomes known as the Sullivan Expedition against some of the Iroquois Indians, I believe, if I remember right, primarily Mohawk Indians in upstate New York. And here are the orders of George Washington, that wonderful model of a Christian gentleman uh, full of chivalry. This is what he does when he's fighting people who are not fellow um, Anglo whiteys, right? George Washington's orders to General John Sullivan dated May 31st, 1779, and I quote, The expedition you are appointed to command is to be directed against the hostile tribes of the six nations of Indians with their associates and adherents. The immediate objects are the total destruction and devastation of their settlements and the capture of as many prisoners of every age and sex as possible. It will be essential to ruin their crops now in the ground and prevent their planting more. I would recommend that some post in the center of the Indian country would be occupied with all expedition, with a sufficient quality of provisions whence parties should be detached to lay waste all the settlements around, with instructions to do it in the most effectual manner that the country may not be merely overrun, but destroyed. But you will not by any means listen to any overture of peace before the total ruinment of their settlements is effected our future security will be in their inability to injure us and in the terror with which the severity of the chastisement they receive will inspire them. End quote from George Washington. Clearly a benevolent Christian gentleman giving orders like that to wage total war against entire Indian societies, not just against their their warriors. And in the Sullivan expedition, at least 40 Indian villages were destroyed and as ordered, crops were burned. Thousands of Iroquois Indians had to flee as refugees in its ruthlessness against civilians and against their means of subsistence. You know, they deliberately destroyed all the crops shortly before harvest time uh, in the fall when you couldn't plant any more crops because then winter sets in and it's not going to work. Right. So they're, they're deliberately destroying all the food of these Indians. And in its ruthlessness, this expedition was uh, an anticipation of the total war tactics used almost a century later by William Tecumseh Sherman and uh, Philip Sheridan, first against the South, against Southern civilians, and then after that war against the Western Indian tribes. Same idea, you know, go after their entire society. Don't just try to engage the, um, the warriors on the battlefield. Dear God, that's a great way to get yourself shot right? Instead, you know, destroy their villages, destroy all their food, etc. Which is a method of war that at least various other sorts of uh, activities and atrocities took place all over the frontier, north and south. Um, And and the atrocities went both ways, you know, Indians scalped whites, white scalped Indians, both mutilated each other. Um, There are accounts of American fighters in the frontier areas talking about literally skinning uh, Indians from head to toe after killing them. Now, the fact that the United States wins the war against Britain means that the Indians are going to lose their benefactor, for the most part, in America. And the British are even happy to, um, you know, drop the western lands west of the Appalachian Mountains to America. Rather than have it go to the French, well, the Indians would have been a hell of a lot better off if that land had gone to the French because the French generally got along well with Indians. Um, But by, you know, handing the land over to the Americans, it is basically setting a gradual death sentence on many of those Indian tribes. Murray Rothbard writes about the Treaty of Paris and its effect on Indians, quote, England's cavalier cession to the United States of the entire unconquered Western lands was part of her maneuvers against France and Spain and was, of course, a gross betrayal of England's Indian allies. And there was always this attitude that, you know, the Indians are in a separate category from whites and that they don't deserve, nor should they be accorded the same degree of, you know, respect and rights and so on. You could even see this in the Declaration of Independence. There's a there's a part of that where it uh, goes on and on about the horrible barbarous Indians and accuses the King of England of stirring them up against uh, the American colonists. And it speaks about them in very racist sounding language, Um, in contrast to the somewhat friendly language used in that clause that didn't make it into the final draft of um, the Declaration of Independence decrying the slave trade and slavery. Howard Zinn writes of the plight of the Indians now that the British lost the war, quote, Now, with the British out of the way, the Americans could begin the inexorable process of pushing the Indians off their lands, killing them if they resisted. In short, as Francis Jennings puts it, the white Americans were fighting against British imperial control in the East and for their own imperialism in the West, And quote. And the, uh, the social situation amongst whites in the East actually increased the willingness of some of them to go West and be really aggressive with the Indians, because since the homegrown American oligarchy controlled most of the best land in the Eastern part, you know, East of the Appalachians, many of the poor whites would, of course, go in the famous tradition of America, go West to find, quote unquote, new land, which would, of course, inevitably bring them consistently into conflict with Indians So the oligarchy's control of the best land in the East is going to directly cause poor Whites to get into conflict with Indians on the frontier. In sum, the Indian tribes not only suffered terribly from the war itself, but as they feared, they fared even worse with independent American republics in their neighborhood than they had with the British Imperial colonies. Another group of people we could name who were overall losers in this war are the French. Yes, I know they're technically on the winning side of the war and they did get to stick it to the British and they did gain a little bit of territory in the Caribbean and also I think in a few spots in Africa. But their empire was still far behind the British and of course they had no hope of ever regaining Canada by this point. And of course, furthermore, they also ended up with a bad national debt that um, they incurred from assisting the Americans And this is generally believed by many historians to have been one of the key factors in bringing about the fiscal crisis of the French government in the 1780s, which ended up being the first domino to fall in the chain reaction that gets known eventually as the French Revolution. That, you know, what resulted in ultimately the overthrow of King Louis XVI's government and eventually the separation of the king's head from his body Um, was, you know, if you trace the chain reaction back, a major factor in the French government having a financial crisis was the American war. Again, which technically they won, but maybe the king of France wouldn't have backed those Americans if he'd known how it would work out in the long run. And, you know, maybe, just maybe, there's a lesson there about getting involved in other countries' wars and revolutions and problems that, even if you appear to win in the simple sense of the word win, who the hell knows what unintended consequences can flow from an intervention, whether it be blowback from the country you've intervened in or domestic problems, instability, even revolution because of, you know, the, the costs endured by an intervention at home. Another group who overall I think should be classified as losers when you look at, you know, the immediate effect of this war on their lives and and security and comfort, are sort of the average people in general, the middle class types, and especially those below the middle class in America. There were, again, individual exceptions, of course, but for the most part, the average common American suffered greatly from the war and its aftermath. And this actually started very early For example, just four days after the Declaration of Independence was first read in Boston, the city's Committee of Correspondence announced a military draft. And then they announced that the wealthy could dodge the draft by hiring a substitute to serve in their place. Riots ensued, and rioters were shouting things like, Tyranny is tyranny, let it come from whom it may. Initially, the militias were mostly composed of middle class type people, but as the war dragged on more than a year or two, those types increasingly wanted to stay on their farms. And so, the more the war dragged on, the more the militias, and even more so the Continental Army, had to increasingly draw from some of the lowest ranks of white society. And again, those uh, soldiers in the Continental Army, the low ranks, generally drawn from the lowest. You know, parts of white society uh, got paid terribly, had awful conditions, draconian punishments and so on. And of course, a huge thing that harmed most average, meaning middle and lower class Americans, uh, regardless of their political ideology or, or whether they served in the military or not, was the economic effects of this war. Since Congress financed much of the war through just printing paper money, there was flat out hyperinflation that did what hyperinflation always does. It gutted the economy and it severely hampered the um, ability of average people to make ends meet. Again, even if they weren't personally involved in the fighting, even if there's not you know armies coming through their town leveling things, uh, the economy got so distorted and messed up by the war itself and by the hyperinflation, that it was just a tough time. Add to that all of the destruction of property um, and the decline of productivity that's inevitably going to happen during eight years of grueling war, and you have just a massive amount of privation and economic dislocation, some of which would take a generation to heal. And the amount of confiscation of supplies that both armies engaged in on a regular basis also did a a huge job of um, making life difficult on just regular Americans trying to put food on their family, as George W. Bush once said. The economy of the average American was severely damaged for years, despite the benefits reaped, whether intentionally or not, by particular special interests. And while the common people overall suffered, in particular, the lower ranks of the Continental Army really had it rough. Of the previous French and Indian War, Howard Zinn writes, quote, The war had brought glory for the generals, death to the privates, wealth for the merchants, unemployment for the poor, end quote. And this statement could be applied just as accurately to the War of American Independence. A lot of the generals of the Continental Army really had nothing but contempt for the lower ranks of their army. There were a few exceptions, but not that many. And Washington was probably one of the worst, along with a lot of his close associates like Alexander Hamilton. You could find these guys repeatedly uh, bad mouthing just sort of the average American, the average poor, you know, soldier. George Washington. When he first took command of the New Englanders who had mobilized around Boston in 1775, wrote of them that they were, quote, an exceedingly dirty and nasty people, end quote. And he um, doubted that they could ever make halfway decent soldiers. These were the people that had, you know, inflicted the defeat of lexington and concord on the british army and who had put up a hell of a scrap at bunker hill and washington said oh they're dirty and nasty you know he he basically was talking about them as if they were scum i don't think he ever used that word scum but he was kind of talking that way very very arrogant and elitist And I'm sure to a super wealthy oligarch who was probably one of the richest men on the entire continent at the time, um, these poor New Englanders who had mobilized to go fight for their homes and their freedom probably did look kind of dirty and scummy because they were poor, because they lived in simple little houses instead of Mount Vernon, right? Because they could only afford one or two pairs of clothes, right? Um, It's easy to be arrogant towards people, you know, who have no wealth when you're a super wealthy oligarch. It would be quite another thing if these uh, soldiers were as wealthy as Washington and still were dirty and unkempt and whatever. But the fact of the matter is, they're friggin' poor. And in another letter um, about the common soldier, Washington wrote of them that they had, quote, an unaccountable kind of stupidity in the lower class of these people, end quote. So they get shit for pay. Their um, officers, for the most part, especially their high-ranking officers, mostly treat them with uh, contempt and so on. And, um, you know, they had the worst conditions. They're sleeping on the ground. They're marching around half the time with no shoes. They're not getting paid. And to add insult to injury, a lot of times when they did get paid, they got paid in, um, in continental bonds, right, that no one thought would ever be repaid at face value and that were almost worthless. These are IOUs, right? Now, a lot of these guys ended up having to sell those bonds for pennies on the dollar, either during or just after the war, just to survive and take care of their families. And a lot of times the guys who um, sold them, I'm sorry, the guys who bought those bonds at pennies on the dollar from common soldiers were wealthy bankers and financiers and speculators. Within just a few years after the end of the war, these Wealthy merchants are one of the main interest groups that starts agitating for a stronger and more powerful centralized government, and in particular, one that could tax more than the existing government. Now, why would this be? Why would a bunch of bankers and financiers want a more centralized and more tax-happy government? Gee, could it be so that they could make sure that these bonds that they bought from common soldiers for pennies on the dollar eventually get repaid with face value? Oh, that's exactly what ends up happening with the passage of the Constitution and the coming to the office of Secretary of the Treasury of Alexander Hamilton. A lot of these poor people who served in the Continental Army did so because they were, like, desperate. It was, in many ways, a poverty draft, a term we hear now, you know, where where poor people are disproportionately represented in the modern American army, right? It's supposedly all volunteer, but people talk of there's a poverty draft. Well, that was definitely the case during the Revolutionary War. And just as in the case of of the modern uh, militaries, it's also a method of social control. You get these lower class people in and um, indoctrinated into the whole thing and they become part of the movement, even though that movement may not be one that they initially thought represented their interests at all. And maybe it still doesn't, but they're more likely to see it that way once they've, you know, been trained and indoctrinated and marched through the battles and so on. Howard Zinn talks about this phenomenon, quote, here was the traditional device by which those in charge of any social order mobilize and discipline a recalcitrant population, offering the adventure and rewards of military service to get poor people to fight for a cause they may not clearly see as their own, End quote. Gee, that doesn't sound like it has any relevance to modern times, does it? And by the way, one of the direct consequences of the plight of the common soldier in this war occurs just a few years after the war ends in something known as Shays' Rebellion. Now, the last group I want to talk about who were, for the most part, unfortunately losers as a result of this conflict are African-Americans. Now, again, there were individual exceptions, but on the whole, African-Americans, including both slave and free, oftentimes were little or no better off, and in a few cases worse off maybe, than before the war. As Samuel Johnson, the famous English writer and staunch Tory, put it in an anti-revolutionary pamphlet he wrote for the British government during the revolution, quote, how is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty among the drivers of Negroes, end quote. And that's a good question. He has a good point. Um, Particularly, you know, you can point out that slave-owning Virginians were some of the most eloquent speakers and writers on the subject of natural rights and individual liberty. Think of someone like Thomas Jefferson or someone like Patrick Henry, both of whom owned large numbers of human beings as they were speaking and writing about the wonders and the greatness of liberty. Um, I won't get into it too much here, but if you want a good book that gets into that subject... um, get a book called American Slavery, American Freedom by the historian Edmund Morgan. And he looks at the history of early Virginia and how it is that in a slave society, you end up with all these, uh, you know, great liberty writers and speakers. Now, obviously, any idiot can tell there's an enormous contradiction between slogans about liberty and all men being created equal and having an rights and all that on the one hand, and the fact that about 20% of, or half a million out of a population of about two and a half million of British North America's people were slaves, and that again, many revolutionary leaders from the southern states were slave owners, and even some from the north uh, might have occasionally owned a slave or two as like butlers. And more people in the north who were wealthy merchants were often involved in uh, trafficking in slaves, shipping them across the ocean. And of course, it's a great tragedy, one of the greatest in American history, that. America missed a golden opportunity to do something about slavery in the Revolution. In the early phases of the war, George Washington was quite surprised by how many free blacks were in the American army that was besieging Boston. And some of them already had reputations for being very effective soldiers. For example, uh, there was... A free black man named Salem Poor of Framingham, Massachusetts, who distinguished himself with bravery and marksmanship at Bunker Hill. And there were several persons of color who participated, some of them very effectively, in Lexington and Concord in a noteworthy fashion. But of course, there was a huge divide within the various regions and social classes of the colonies over what should be done regarding blacks, both uh, free and slave, in terms of the army, in terms of rights, all these things. So the one extreme, you had the Deep South, places like South Carolina that were the most militantly defensive of slavery. South Carolina representatives tried to actually get a full law passed to bar any blacks from serving in the American army, even free blacks. And at first, Washington was inclined to agree, but apparently after witnessing their performance up in New England, he changed his mind and actually supported having free blacks being able to uh, join the army, at least in the north. By 1781, the last year of of significant fighting in the war, one in every seven soldiers in the American army was black. Most of them were from the northern states. And there were some good people in the high levels of politics in the army at the time on the question of slavery. For example, George Washington's close friend, and often called virtually his son in terms of their relationship, the French nobleman Marquis de Lafayette, made clear that he abhorred slavery. He, he absolutely despised it. And he once wrote to Washington, quote, I would never have drawn my sword in the cause of America if I could have conceived thereby I was founding a land of slavery, End quote. In 1778, after Valley Forge had really put a a dent in uh, U.S. troop numbers, a general named James Varnum of Rhode Island proposed to George Washington that they should create an entire regiment of black soldiers. The state of Rhode Island passed a law saying that a slave who volunteered to fight would earn his freedom and that his former owner would be compensated $400 for him being freed. And about 250 slaves volunteered over the next few months in Rhode Island. And um, this ended up building the black regiment, Rhode Island's black regiment that served for the remainder of the war. Alexander Hamilton, a guy who I'm not a fan of in most ways, sometimes given credit as being anti-slavery, and in some ways he was, but um, there's, there's some problems with that I won't get into here because of time, but anyway... In 1779, Alexander Hamilton recommended the recruitment of blacks into the army on a large scale, not out of any respect for them or desire to make them citizens, at least none that he expressed then, but because, in his words, quote, that habit of subordination, which they acquire from a life of servitude, will make them sooner become soldiers than our white inhabitants, end quote. In other words, because they're already accustomed to being ordered around and not being free, they'll be good soldiers, which is an interesting point to think about. Now, a guy who is a little-known unsung hero, on this issue anyway, in this war, a guy who I'm not a big fan of in a lot of ways, but I give him credit, he's good on slavery, was a colonel named John Lawrence, a uh, young officer from South Carolina. You may recall his name in connection to um, him defending Washington from Charles Lee and actually fighting a duel against Charles Lee. Only in his 20s during the war, um, he became a colonel and an aide to George Washington, and... um, Again, as we saw, for the most part, he was a an absolute a sycophantic supporter of Washington who, you know, vehemently defended him from all of his critics, even shot Charles Lee over the question. But again, that said, I'll give anybody their due when they're, when they're right about something, when they're good on something. And this guy is good about the issue of slavery during the Revolutionary War, especially shocking considering, A, he's a South Carolinian, which is the most ardently pro-slavery state at the time, and B, he is the son of... Uh, of what at the time was the wealthiest slave trader in South Carolina. Yet despite being a South Carolinian and the son of a slave trader, John Laurens wanted to extend the rights described in the Declaration of Independence to slaves. Laurens even wrote before the Declaration of Independence, quote, I think we Americans, at least in the southern colonies, cannot contend with a good grace for liberty until we have enfranchised our slaves. End quote. And he really liked General Varnum's idea of a black regiment uh, that was done up in Rhode Island, and he wanted to do something similar in South Carolina. Now, imagine how controversial that's going to be, right? But apparently Colonel Lawrence was a really persuasive guy because he eventually persuaded George Washington and even his own slave trading father, Lawrence's slave trading father, um, to support the idea of raising a black regiment in South Carolina. But the idea ultimately was roadblocked by others. In March of 1779, when the British invasion of the South was in full swing and going very well, um, Congress actually voted. They, they had little power to force the states to do anything at this time under the Articles of Confederation. But Congress nonetheless, March 1779, voted to, quote, urge, end quote, Georgia and South Carolina to raise 3,000 black troops to be commanded by Colonel Lawrence. The Congress said they would pay $1,000 to the owner of each slave, and when the war was over, all of the slaves would be given their freedom and given a $50 bounty for themselves. Even though the British Army was at that time successfully invading South Carolina, the governor of South Carolina nonetheless uh, immediately rejected the idea. So kind of like a lot of the Confederate leaders during the not so civil war, they would rather lose the war than um, make serious moves against slavery, even if they involve, um, you know, blacks earning their slavery through successful military service. Colonel Lawrence nonetheless continued to push the idea, and though he got some more powerful supporters behind him, including Nathaniel Green, it kept getting shot down by the South Carolina state government. They just, you know, dug in, would not budge on the issue. And um, unfortunately for the issue of anti slavery in South Carolina, Colonel Lawrence ended up dying, leading his men in a bayonet charge in literally one of the last battles of the entire war. Upon hearing of the death of Lawrence, John Adams wrote to Lawrence's father, quote, Our country has lost its most promising character. End quote. Now, overall, the British actually did much more in terms of offering slaves their freedom in return for military or other service in the war. And thousands of blacks served the British in this war, and thousands did leave at the end with their freedom for other parts of the British Empire. Once again, exact numbers not available, but I think it's pretty clear that while a small number of slaves earned their freedom serving in the American army, many, many more did so uh, via the British Army. Though the Deep South states, like South Carolina and Georgia, vigorously resisted having um, free blacks in their army, let alone slaves, um, in some of the Upper South states, like Maryland and Virginia, there were a decent number of free blacks who did serve in some of those um, regions of the war. So there were some gains made by, by some african-americans at the time howard zinn writes of this quote what the revelry what the revolution did was to create space and opportunity for blacks to begin making demands of white society pointing to the declaration of independence blacks petitioned congress and the state legislatures to abolish slavery to give blacks equal rights end quote And often these sorts of things came from the educated elites of some of the free black communities, which could be found in some of the larger cities in both the north and the upper south. And yes, there was an elite amongst the blacks. Now, they would have been relatively of modest means compared to the white elite. But there was like their their own, you know, homegrown elite who were a bit more educated and literate and so on. It must be said that the revolution was an important factor in bringing about the gradual end of slavery in the northern states of the war. I think there's no question about that. Most of the northern states at least begin the process of phasing out slavery within a few years of the end of the war. But again, this was this was done gradually in most of the northern states. As late as 1810, there were still 30,000 slaves living in the northern states which was about a quarter of the North's entire black population. So, you know, about three quarters of northern blacks in 1810 were were free, but um, the, the other quarter was still slaves. And in fact, according to Howard Zinn, as late as 1840, there were still about a thousand slaves living in the northern states. But again, some individuals did um, do well because of the war. Even in the South, especially in the Upper South, rather than the Deep South, there were some slave owners who... Out of gratitude towards slaves who had um, stayed loyal to them during the war, thank them with manumission, you know, individual acts of, you know, you had one particular uh, loyal slave who didn't betray to the British, even though he might have had an opportunity to. And when the war is over, you say, you know what, you're you're uh, you're a OK. I officially grant you your freedom. And you can actually see an increase in the Upper South, places, again, like Virginia and Maryland, in free black populations in some areas because of this trend. Historian Stephen Conway writes that in the decades following the war, the population of free blacks in the Chesapeake grew from just a few thousand before the war to about 60,000 after. So definitely there were uh, individual African-Americans who, you know, got their freedom or uh, lived in a state that eventually started getting rid of slavery in the north who did end up better off as a result of this war. But um, to the vast majority of slaves, they were still slaves when the war ended. You know, there were there were some uh, thousands who did get their freedom via the British, but still looking at the whole population of slaves in North America, most of them are still slaves um, after the war. So, you know, it's a mixed bag, as all wars are. These things are always so complicated. Even within the countries who are the nominal winners of a war, there's always going to be particular groups of people that um, don't do well. And I went through all this so that I could... Open the eyes of many of you because a lot of times all you ever get about the American War of Independence is sunshine and lollipops and yeah it was a little rough at Valley Forge but other than that it was kind of a clean war um, and, and everybody was better off when the goddamn British left and so on and of course that is far too childish and simplistic of a depiction. Hope you'll tune in next time for my final episode on the American Revolution, which I'm going to entitle Reflections on the American Revolution, and it'll just be a huge grab bag of, of things, I think, like lessons that are contained there and so on. So I hope you'll tune in for that. As always, I hope that uh, you've learned something and you have a deeper understanding of this thing than you did before listening to this episode. Remember, you can leave comments if you have any that are relevant to this particular episode. Um, at profcj.org, my website. You can also email me questions, comments about whatever. Uh, profcj at profcj.org. Remember, you can connect with and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Um, you can subscribe in a bunch of ways. You can email subscribe to the website and get an email every time I post something new. Um, you can also subscribe to the show itself on venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And if you click on subscribe on the uh, the yellow rectangle on my website you'll see a variety of different ways uh, that you can subscribe to the podcast. So choose whichever one you prefer. Remember, there are multiple ways you can help out and support this show. One is, as always, to spread the word about it to anyone you think might uh, be interested in it through whatever means you have online, word of mouth, whatever. Remember, also, you can help the show by leaving ratings or reviews in venues like iTunes and Stitcher and remember you can help the show financially and i would greatly appreciate it like i've been saying i'm strapped this summer so um i'll continue my uh, extra extra fun fun drive here huge thanks to all who have uh, chipped in in the last month or so um give a little extra and whatever i really appreciate it it's helping me scrape by this summer since i had one of my classes get canceled so big thanks to those who have helped out um Big request to those. If you have the means and you appreciate this show and you've listened to it, uh, please consider donating. You can donate directly, profcj.org slash donate uh, via PayPal or Bitcoin. You can also help the show financially by buying stuff from Amazon.com through my Amazon links found on my website. Huge thank you again also to those who have been buying stuff from Amazon via my links recently. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ, helping you to learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.